You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm your co-host from BleacherReport.com, Chad Dundas. And joining me, as always, from MMA Junkie and USA Today, it's your work acquaintance and mine, Mr. Ben Folks. Now, Ben, before we start in earnest this week's podcast, I just wanted to make it clear that we are not friends. We have never been friends. And if you ever thought we were friends, maybe you need to figure out a different and better definition for the word friend. Well, I died a little inside just now, but that's okay. I guess that's how you want it. Work associate Chad Dundas. And if we were friends, why didn't you call me after I fired your ass, frankly? <laughs> Wait, so you, do you want to be my friend or not? I don't. You want me to call you or don't you want me to call we'll, you? We'll get into it okay. later as we go along. Uh, once again, this episode of the Co-Main Event Podcast is brought to you by DraftKings.com. You're an MMA fanatic and proud of it. You know all the fighters. You watch all the fights. Heck, man, you're listening to an MMA podcast right now. It's time to put your knowledge of the sport to the test at DraftKings.com. At DraftKings, you could win huge cash prizes every time you play. Just select five fighters, stay under the salary cap, outscore your competition, and you could be on your way to a massive payday. Score points for significant strikes, takedowns, advances, knockdowns, and more. These are the biggest daily fantasy MMA contests anywhere, and they're only only at DraftKings.com. Play to win your piece of $1 billion in prizes that DraftKings is giving away this year. Don't miss out. Ben, tell them how they can play for free. Well, Chad, you hurry to DraftKings.com now and use promo code CME to play Daily Fantasy MMA for free this weekend during UFC 190. Remember, use CME to play for free now at DraftKings.com. That's DraftKings.com. I got a hot DraftKings tip for you. Oh, yeah? Ronda. Take Ronda Rousey. Maybe, oh, Ronda Rousey. Yeah, okay. May, maybe by armbar. Oh. Just uh, hold on. Let me write this down. I don't, I don't know if you know this or not, but I am a professional mixed martial arts analyst. No. And my professional advice this week is take Ronda. Okay. Ronda Rousey. Yes. Okay. Don't be confused. There's no H in the first name. All right. Let me get on Wikipedia real quick. Three rounds, as usual, in the co-main event podcast this week. It's raining like cats and dogs out there. I think that's going to bring sort of like a guided meditation it's aspect. Kind of spooky. To this week's podcast. Yeah. People can hear the rain coming down because it's loud. Do you want to run out there and harness the storm or, or no? I think I'm, gonna, I think I'm good. Okay. I think I'm just going to go on natural. All right. Round number one. You know, even though I think he'd be a fairly benevolent leader, I think the rest of the world is lucky that TJ Dillashaw isn't six foot three and 235 pounds. In round number two, memo to Dana White. Dude, the problem is not that you didn't call Stitch Duran after you fired his ass for speaking out about how you severely limited his earning potential. The fact that you didn't call him is not what everyone is mad about. And in round number three, if Ronda Jean Rousey plans to make an example out of Betch Cohia, Ah, uh, man, what in God's name has she been doing to all of those other people? That's terrifying. All that plus, are you fucking kidding me and just saying stuff? But right now, like we always do about this time, let's do a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. The first piece of listener mail this week comes to us from David Neighbor. He writes, what's really going on with that Dana White tweet about USA Today MMA junkie? USA Today issued a statement denying any agreement with the UFC, but all the clicks in MMA don't fly John Morgan around the world 20 times per year. I'm not questioning hashtag lifestyle pieces integrity, but Ben, if that is his real name, did you joke about UFC's state-run media? Uh, he did joke about UFC state-run media. So as readers slash listeners, I feel like we deserve clarification and sue discourse. Yeah. Okay. That is that is a good one that we should respond to. We were kind of told by the, the USA Today bosses there that we didn't want to really get into it on social media after that because you don't want to really get into a pissing contest 140 characters at a time. That never really gets you anywhere. Um, 
To be perfectly honest, I don't know exactly what the details of the UFC's advertising agreement with USA Today were, uh, nor should I really uh, know exactly the wording of all that stuff. All I can tell you is, I mean, they they bought advertising. Uh, they We used to do these pullouts around big events and everything, and you can look in there and see that there's a lot of like UFC advertising and UFC advertisers in there. Um, and so if you want to say, Hey, the UFC bought enough advertising to where USA today covered them more often than they would have. Otherwise, I don't know if I can necessarily argue with that, but at the same time, they covered other non UFC MMA. I mean, I've personally written Bellator articles and wrote world series of fighting, uh, related articles for USA today, wrote stuff that's not related to any one promotion. So you can't say that USA today is only covering MMA because the UFC paid them. Uh, and I don't even believe they have that advertising deal in place anymore. And you still see John Morgan flying 20 times around the world, all over the place, going to Scotland and whatnot. Um, so, yeah, I, I mean, to me, as far as I could tell there, it seemed like a uh, an advertising deal that they had. But never did anybody come to me and say, hey, don't write this or write this or be nicer about this um, because the UFC is paying us. Like, that doesn't really happen. Um, and, you know, the... The idea that a sponsor, whether it's an organization or a cable network or whatever, who usually buys a lot of space on MMA websites, would get some pushback if they didn't like some of the coverage. Like, they usually try that. That's happened at literally every MMA website I've worked for, where somebody who buys some advertising space attempts to pressure somebody at the the website, uh, usually about my coverage, which now I'm trying to connect some dots here. Um, but... If you have good people around you, and we do at MMA Junkie, then they kind of shield you from that stuff, and so you don't really have to deal with it. Uh, and, yeah, so I've never dealt with anybody. I mean, especially, like, looking on Deadspin and having them say, oh, the MMA Junkie gives US, uh, UFC, like, just positive coverage. I don't know how you can really – I don't know if you've read the website regularly, if that's what you think. Yeah. No one has accused me of being too positive about the UFC lately. Yeah, that's part of what I was going to say. I obviously have no inside information about whether or not any kind of under-the-table deal existed between the UFC and, and USA Today. I've only seen the Dana White tweet and, and heard all of the same rumors that everyone else uh, has heard. And I want to be clear, if if some kind of untoward relationship existed between those two entities. I don't like it. I think it's unethical. I would be worried about it. And I would also think that any company that got involved with that kind of secret partnership with the UFC would regret it immediately because the UFC is crazy. And if that relationship does exist, I will clearly have no qualms with outing you about it after it's over. Um, at the same time, though, I would also point out that pretty much everything about media literacy in 2015 comes down to being able to perceive what kind of content you're viewing. And that's how it's always been for me. I always look at, at everybody's content on a case by case basis. And no matter what's going on behind the scenes, I think that we're all able to, to form opinions about what's going on with the people that create that content. If you look at Fox sports, as we've talked about before, and as David neighbor uh, uh, references in his question, uh, you can look at their content on television and you know that they're kind of softball and stuff for the UFC, that most of that stuff is probably getting cleared through the Zufa offices and they're not doing a lot of hard hitting journalism there. Uh, I look at the MMA junkie content and I've never had that feeling. I've never had a problem with it. I would say, uh, if some kind of uh, a softball agreement existed between USA Today and the UFC, first of all, I would say I'm certain none of the people at M MMA Junkie would have had a say in that. Second of all, I think people, even if that agreement did exist, I think people oftentimes overestimate how much that affects what's happening on the ground with the individual reporters. Because if you've worked for any kind of newspaper, as I have in a town where there's either a professional sports team or you know, a major college or a dominant college team, those two entities are intermingled almost all the time with advertising revenue and dependence on each other. Since the newspaper makes a lot of money off the sports team and the sports team uh, depends on the newspaper for, for coverage. So those kind of relationships aren't really that unusual, but very seldom do they actually impact what's happening on the ground. And like you said, I would look at MMA junkie and say, if there was some kind of agreement between the USA today and, and the UFC, I don't know how MMA Junkie would employ one of the like best known, most articulate, and best respected critics of the UFC, which is you, by the way. Oh, I thought you meant Stephen Morocco. No, the compliment 
section of the co-main event podcast has now concluded. I also don't know how they would employ Stephen Morocco, though, yeah, who's one of our industry's best uh, investigative journalists. I don't know how they would hire a guy like Brent Brookhouse, who came over from uh, Bloody Elbow just recently and has always been regarded as a straight shooter. And Bloody Elbow has always been one of the most critical websites of the UFC. I don't know how they would employ as their head guy, Dan Stupp, uh, an editor who, you know, uh, never shies away from voicing his opinion on social media. So regardless of whether or not there was some kind of advertising deal between the parent company and between the UFC, I look at the content and I just don't see the UFC getting anything from it in terms of, of positive press. And in fact, if the advertising agreement ended last summer, which was the part of the rumor that I read online, I don't think you could look at MMA junkie and say, well, the coverage obviously changed between yeah. then and now. It seems like the same as it's always been. And I, in my opinion, it's always been pretty, pretty good, pretty high quality stuff. Oh, I thought you said the compliment portion was over. Oh, damn it. Well, I would, that time I wasn't talking about you specifically. Okay. I'm Fair done enough. complimenting you probably for the rest of time. Fair enough. Just so you know. Yeah. Next question this week comes to us from Paul Peterson. He writes, how many times does Misha Tate have to lose to Ronda Rousey? A third fight is fucking stupid. Exclamation point. Discuss. Wow. Succinct. I'll say that for Paul Peterson's question. Yeah. So uh, Misha Tate goes out and kind of has what I think is becoming sort of her patented come from behind victory style uh, in rebounding from a few rough first minutes in this fight to then uh, beat up Jessica I for the duration there. Um, and uh, the cat out of the bag that uh, we're going to go ahead and and. I guess green light a third fight between Ronda Rousey and and Misha Tate because Aster no one asterisk no one is even pretending that Ronda Rousey might not win that fight. There you go. Now Let's we don't go have ahead. to explain the asterisk. Even uh, talking about it at the press conference, Dana White said, "Yeah, she's earned her way back to another shot at Ronda Rousey." Uh, Misha Tate's talking about, "Yeah, I love to punch Ronda Rousey in the face again." It's like you guys know there's a fight this weekend, right? Like we're not even doing the the thing where we pretend to go against the winner of Ronda Rousey versus Betch Cohea. We're just we're already going ahead going ahead and digging the grave for Betch Cohea now and we just wait to see how much of her body is left to put in it. Uh do you have a problem with it because I have to say, I mean, do you have a problem with Ronda Rousey Misha Tate 3? I have to say I don't really have a problem with it just because the women's bantamweight division is pretty shallow. Ronda's beat a lot of those top contenders. I do think it's unprecedented that somebody would get a third shot at a champion who's already beat them twice. Uh, but at the same time, like, I don't know what you would do that would be any better short of like fast forwarding Holly Holm into it. And, and I think we're all on the same page that, that she needs a little bit more seasoning. Well, I would think in a perfect world, Holly Holm and Misha Tate should fight each other. And the winner of that uh, should fight Ronda Rousey, whoever it is. Because then if it's Misha Tate, she, you would say, all right, she won five straight. She beat Holly Holm. You know, she beat uh, like basically three straight contenders in the division. Uh, she's made it so that she's the clear number two. What else can you do? Put her in there. And then if Holly Holm wins, then, hey, she won three straight and beat up Misha Tate. You can't argue with that. I think the reason the UFC doesn't want to do that is the same reason that – we're down to that being the only other option is because the division is pretty thin right now. Ronda Rousey's beat all the other top contenders in the division. So you don't want to knock off a potential contender. It'd be better to, or easier, more profitable to put Misha Tate in there. Now let's get what we can from the, the dregs of that rivalry and let Holly Holm win one more fight to kind of make her case. And that way you can let both contenders fight. I think that's kind of the, the money play by the UFC here. And meanwhile, hopefully, uh, Chris Cyborg can can get her shit together, get on a vegan diet or something, and get down there to 135. Yeah, the more time that passes, the more it seems like that's not going to happen. But I guess, like, the question is, I don't think anyone would argue with Misha Tate against uh, Holly Holm. But then, what do you do with what do you do with Triple R? What do you do with the Cash Machine? You're just going to let the Cash Machine go dormant for tell, a few months? Tell her to go make a movie or something. I don't know. So yeah, you turn on unplugging the Cash Machine. That yeah. thing's just spitting out $100 bills, man. You turn that <laughs> off? Or you want to do a third fight with Misha Tate? Just keep the $100 bills squirting out. All right, I guess we'll plug in the cash machine. There you go. Uh, next question this week comes to us from Cody Wilson. He writes, intentional or not, a spinning back kick to the dick deserves some form of penalty, right? I don't know whether I should be flabbergasted at the quote-unquote shit-happens attitude toward devastating fouls or ecstatic that another crippling technique has been added to the art of dundasso. And then it says, disgust. 
with a T on the end. I of got it. it. So yeah. Everybody is. Uh, We're having fun. Yeah. Everybody's really having fun here. Um, so obviously he's referring to the lightweight fight this past weekend between Edson Barbosa and Paul Felder. Uh, Edson Barbosa ended up winning that by uh, unanimous decision, but along the way he did, in fact, spinning back kick Paul Felder right in the dick. Yeah, and man. That looked like it hurt. It looked like it hurt a lot. Like it looked like for at least a second there, you were like, oh, this could be the rare no contest due to low blow that uh, I, I remember the last one I saw, I think was in Pride. Uh, really don't see that one happen that often. Every, usually the guy is shamed into continuing and then knocked out soon thereafter. Uh, yeah, that is a good example, though, of the situation where normally we'll give you a couple of those before we even think about an actual meaningful punishment for it. You, usually, you know, it's like, all right, you let a couple inside thigh kicks slip up there. Hey, don't do it again. But man, the spinning back kick to the dick, that is pretty bad. You don't really need to take more than one of those for it to really alter what you're capable of in there. Yeah, uh, I do think, I think you need to take a point in that, in that instance. And even if it's unintentional, like I've said a lot on this podcast, we need to stop getting into the business of, of trying to figure out what, somebody's intent basically during the the split second action of mixed martial arts but then what are you saying any kick to the groin point right away i think anyone that's pretty bad yeah take a point but also like i've said Do you have this, to spin this, does it need to require some spinning shit <laughs> you don't have to spin but a spin results in an automatic deduction okay let's rewrite the rules so they read that way no we've talked about this before like I think that's the ideal situation to take a point for basically every foul. But I also think for that to work, you have to redo the scoring because as it stands now with the 10 point must system, you take a point away. It's, it's basically like a, a crippling deduction in the round. You basically can't win the round at that point unless you're, you know, unless you're going to win 10, eight or whatever. Uh, so I think a lot of work needs to be done just to try to get the scoring and the way that we adjudicate the rules properly figured out. But uh, at the same time, man, if you're going to go high risk, high reward technique, like a spinning, spinning back kick, if that slips into the groin area, I wouldn't have a problem with them taking a point just on general principle. Uh, but uh, I mean, the problem with that, doing that with kicks and with eye pokes is th there's always going to be the chance that the guy can kind of game it a little bit, sure. right? Like yeah. he can take a kick high up or like a, take a knee that's kind of to the, the waist and uh, trick the referee into thinking that it was to the groin. And then you get into the question of like, do we want to have instant replay for the ref to make sure that there was actually a kick or an eye poke or whatever? I mean, I think the point deduction for the fence grab is a lot easier because man, we can see your damn hand on the fence right. and you didn't do that on accident. Uh, the the pokes and the kicks is a, is a little bit tougher, I think, and that's why we are so tempted to try to discern intent. Yeah, and I I, I think I think you're right. I think if you went with a, an automatic point deduction system, you would have to incorporate some kind of replay so that people didn't try to game the system like that. And and as I think we've talked about on the show before, you start talking about replay in mixed martial arts, it's it sounds a lot easier than it actually turns out to be. If you were only going to use it for fouls, I don't think it would be that big of a deal to have an additional ref who just looked at the replay. Well, and, and then, because you're going to stop anyway for the foul, right? right? Yeah. So you have a second to look at it. So or can, how about this? We put a sensor in everybody's cup, okay. right? A little microchip in there. I like where you're going. Uh, then we have somebody show up to the Nevada State Athletic Commission hearing to talk for six hours about that sensor before we ultimately decide to decide at a later meeting. Yeah, we're going to create a committee to look into the possibility of creating a committee to look into the possibility of these microchips. Cup sensors. Cup sensors. Can you imagine how terrified the State Athletic Commission would be of that technology? Like anything new that comes up, they act like, you know, 19th century Luddites <laughs> who fear the, the advent of the, the horseless carriage. <laughs> uh, working title for these sensors, Detectable. Okay, yes. That's off the top of I my like head, that. man. You know, that would look good as a sponsor on the back of somebody's fight shorts. There you go. Uh, you mean their kit? Yes, Okay. Their, their fight uniform. In theory, I like that the UFC is bringing Mark Ratner onto these broadcasts to explain what's happening with the fouls. Like the NFL does. But this time, this time it was kind of uh, uh, hilarious, I think, when they first cut to Mark Ratner, he said something like, yeah, 
hard kick there right to the groin. And it's like, yeah, we already saw that part, (laughs) Mark. You don't have to explain that to us. We're fully aware of what's going on there. No, I thought the same thing because they've done that a couple times with bringing him on the broadcast. And it's like watching an NFL game where like Fox will have a former like NFL uh, official kind of take you through tricky parts of the rules. The problem, I think, is that the rules in MMA for these instances where we have a, a pause long enough to get Mark Ratner on the mic, it's usually not that complicated. Like, he doesn't have a lot to say. It's like, yeah, he got kicked in the groin there. Didn't look intentional. I think he'll continue. And you're like, great. Thank you for, like, you don't need an encyclopedic knowledge of the unified rules of martial arts in order to make that comment. Every once in a while, I mean, basically the only thing he can do is tell you if they stopped it right now, we'd go to the cards. Or if they stopped it right now, it'd be a no contest. Former Nevada State Athletic Commission chairman and World War I flying ace. Mark Ratner. Next question comes to us from Devin Scott by way of Port Coquitlam. Did I say that right? I have no idea. He writes, like in some John Hughes movie, Vanderlei Caesar Da Silva has become the weird incarnation of a rambling character who spends his time angry like a jilted lover. Vanderlei Caesar Da Silva probably feels he has been passed over by the UFC, unable to join Bellator's senior league, which subsequently exiles him from Dave and Buster's parties. So when he comes out with these videos and statements of how he will be the beacon of some type of organized labor movement, it makes me pause in reflection of the plethora of other stupid shit he has said. Do you think that these remarks are being ratcheted up based on some evidence that he has of fixed fights, or are these ramblings and hilarious Twitter rants just great fodder for the media? Media. Lastly, if the co-main event podcast was to start spending its quote-unquote Viacom money, how likely is Vanderlei Caesar Da Silva to make it on the payout, payroll? Please discuss. Okay. Of all the people to accuse the UFC of fixed fights and to claim he has evidence, the dude whose career heyday was in pride is probably the dude who doesn't want to mess around with that. Right. Probably doesn't want to open that whole can of worms because... I'm going to guess there might be some stuff in there that he'd rather not have entered the conversation. Yeah, we'll put Quentin Jackson under oath and ask him about those hand signals that the refs were using <laughs> or that the ringside officials were using to tell the refs to stand up the fight when he was fighting Vanderlei. Remember that when he made those allegations? Or when they poisoned him before right. he fought Sakuraba. That, does, that seems like, now that you mention it, that seems like a much bigger deal, the poisoning. <laughs> yes. Well, okay, but I mean, the point is, like, if you were going to tell me, like, hey... There, there is proof of fixed fights in a major MMA organization that does or has existed. Everybody's going to say pride. Like everybody's going to guess pride first. Yeah. Well, right? everyone's going to think of, uh, Takata taking down Mark Coleman, you know, and then applying, uh, what was it? The, uh, ankle lock in a, in a backwards a way that wouldn't work. Right. He did Coleman it backwards. moving back into his guard in order to even, get submitted. Uh, boss root no, Boss Rudin and I think Steven Quadros were just like dumbfounded. Yeah, right? if you're going to fix a fight, you should probably get the commentators in on it, should you not? Right. Or you're so going to yell, he's broken in half. <laughs> you know, or you should do a better job of fixing it, I guess. But yeah, okay. Vanderlei Silva claiming that he has evidence of the UFC's fixed fights. I guess, like, let's say for just the sake of crazy argument that that is true. Doesn't that seem likely that it would also indict Vanderlei Silva along with it? Because how, like, is he saying he has evidence of other people's fixed fights? Because why would he have that? Ev- and what kind of evidence are we talking about? Maybe he found someone's diary. Okay. Maybe he right. found the diary of Dan the Beast Severn writing about fixed fights. Yeah. Well, there, I mean, there That's have always been rumors. There have always been rumors of fixed fights in the old school UFC. I know in the. Clyde Gentry, the third book about the really early history of the UFC, he alleges that Don Fry, I think, and his manager tried to fix a fight, maybe with Anthony Macias. I could be getting this totally wrong, but like whatever the semifinal fight was in the ultimate ultimate before Don Fry fought Tank Abbott, I think is the one that it is. Uh, but there's never been really any proof of that and clearly no like serious talk of fixed fights under the Zufa banner. I've always said time and time again, that would be like the stupidest thing they could possibly do, especially, you know, throughout the history of an emerging sport that has always been kind of, uh, you know, on the ledge anyway. Can you imagine if it suddenly turned out that 
a lot of the mixed martial arts fights were fixed. Like the, the mainstream and the state athletic commissions and, and John McCain would all just instantly wash their hands of it. It would be the worst thing that could happen. Yeah. Well, uh, not to mention, there's just not a whole lot of, uh, motivation for the UFC to fix fights. If you want to talk about the danger of fixed fights, it's probably related to low fighter pay uh, and all the events you have going down in Vegas where you can send your corner man into any sports book on the strip and have him place a bet down on the other guy. If you've decided, screw this stuff, I'm making 10 and 10, uh, I'm the favorite here and, and I'm going to cash out. Like That's the danger of where fixed fights are most likely to come from. Uh, from the fighters themselves and not really involving the organization like you don't need a whole conspiracy to to fix a fight you just need one guy really uh so i mean the the larger point though from devin scott like vanderlei silva trying to be this rallying point for fighter unity if not an actual fighter union and some of the times he says some stuff and you're like that's a good point i wish somebody else made it somebody with more credibility at the moment. And then when he comes out with stuff like this, you go, well, you kind of just ruined whatever cachet you had, whatever stuff that you had built up, because now you just, you just sound like the old man on a porch yelling crazy shit. Like you made a good point about uh, campaign uh, finance reform, and then you started yelling about how 9-11 was an inside job and we had to be, well, shit. Come yeah. on. Uh, yeah, the messenger is flawed in Vanderlei Silva, which is too bad because you're right. Oftentimes he does make what I think are good points, maybe not in this instance, but sometimes in the past. And like it did right at the end kind of feel like he got a raw deal, not necessarily uh, that he was like completely innocent, but it was at the time when the, the, the promoter was kind of trying to stick up for Vitor Belfort and then Vanderlei Silva uh, avoided a drug test at his gym and we all decided to act like avoiding a drug test was was like tantamount to first degree murder yeah, whereas no, goes, actually it, failing a drug test was just manslaughter it goes it, murder rape avoiding a drug test and then you go way down the list um hit like, and run accident is down there yeah uh you way down there to like you know changing lanes without signaling and then below that failing a drug test apparently right. So, I mean, that obviously makes him a failed messenger, but at the same time, I did kind of feel bad for the way that, that he was shown the door in this sport. Uh, I'm not sure that shown he, the door, but not allowed to do anything else. Like right. not even a lot, like the Dave and Buster's thing, not even allowed to make some money by showing up and being Vanderlei. Right. And that's, that's where you get into questions above, of legality. I think like if you're going to ban Vanderlei Silva for life, and I don't think you should still be allowed to hang on to his UFC contract and not allow him to go play ski ball with Hoist Gracie and, right. you know, collect a five grand check or whatever it is. And a bunch of those little tickets that he will then turn in for a big stuffed animal. That's right. A dog filled with sawdust to take home <laughs> to all the little Vanderleys out there. That's going to do it for Listener Mail this week. If you have a question, a comment, a concern to air to the Co-Main Event podcast in future weeks, you know how to get a hold of us. You go to the website, comainevent.com, and click the link in the top right-hand corner of the screen that says email the podcast. That'll get you in touch with us. Say, I tell you what, while you're there, you might as well sign up for the Breakfast of Champions newsletter. That comes out every Friday morning to catch you up on the news and notes that we miss from Monday to Friday when we're not recording the podcast. And there always is some because, as you know, some news always breaks on Tuesday right after this damn thing comes out. So it's not like it's ever been a problem for us filling the space in the no. Breakfast of Champions. No. If you don't like it, you can just unsubscribe. It's free. It's relatively risk-free. Uh, but we think you'll like it. So head over to the website, comainevent.com, and, and sign up for the Breakfast of Champions. As for right now, though, we're going to go ahead and get started with round number one. Round one of the co-main event podcast is presented by the National Academy of Sports Medicine. The National Academy of Sports Medicine is looking for people who want an exciting career in the fitness industry where you wake up every day doing something that you love 
NASM trainers improve people's lives by helping them reach their health and fitness goals. Don't miss this opportunity to start a career where you get to stay active and you get to change other people's lives. It doesn't get any better than that. The NASM guarantees you'll land a job within 60 days of earning your CPT certification or your money back. Ben, tell them about the free internet offer. Which I didn't get a 14 day free trial of fun online programs at myusatrainer.com. That's myusatrainer.com. Restrictions apply. See myusatrainer.com for details. Well, Ben, I don't want Ariel Helwani to sue me for gimmick infringement, but I almost feel like this was a y'all must have forgot. Hashtag y'all must have forgot performance. Are you saying you don't want Roy Jones Jr. to sue you for gimmick infringement? I have a hard time telling those two guys about Yeah, yeah. Uh, DJ Dillashaw, your men's bantamweight champion in the UFC, showed up at this UFC on Fox event for his rematch with Henan Barrow, and one more time just ran circles around the poor Brazilian. Uh, and this was the first time we'd seen Dillashaw since August of 2014 when he was supposed to fight Henry Burrow, but then Henry Burrow had to go to the hospital because he couldn't make 135 pounds. They brought Joe Soto in uh, as a short notice replacement, and TJ Dillashaw stopped him via late head kick and punch KO combo. Uh, so for me, this was a fight that we kind of needed to have just because coming into that first fight at UFC 173, Dillashaw had been kind of unproven. Henan Barrow had been super dominant. Turns out, nope, TJ Dillashaw just way better than Henan Barrow and maybe way better than everyone else who's currently active in that weight class. Yeah, at the very least, I think we can firmly say that he has Henan Barrow's number. Just lighting him up and at times getting a little loose in there to where he was taking more punches than it seemed like he really needed to. You every once in a while get clocked on the chin and go, okay, I guess I should take this a little more seriously. This guy can still, he still has some life in him. He's still throwing back. But you knew, especially by the third round, you knew it was only a matter of time that he was really getting to Hen and Brow. And Brow's tough. You had to give him that because he took a lot of punches in that fight. He did. And, uh, Dillashaw ended up finishing him in the fourth. So, uh, Quicker this time than even in the first fight uh, when he didn't stop him until the fifth round. Uh, I feel like TJ Dillashaw is super fun to watch. I know I've probably said this before about other fighters under 155 pounds. I feel like it's a shame that it seems like the pay-per-view buying public at large is like unwilling to pay to watch these guys and that they've been kind of slow to accept the little guy fighters, you might say. But maybe for the first time since Uriah Faber was the champion, I feel like TJ Dillashaw could be a dude that you could promote, that you could get behind. I feel like he's got a little something-something going on there that could make him, if not a big star, which I think maybe is an as a stretch at this point, like at least a guy that a good portion of hardcore MMA fans would want to pay to watch. I think, if anything, the Conor McGregor situation has taught us that weight is not the issue. Especially, I mean, you can say weight is the issue in instances where you think the smaller fighters don't finish each other as often. Okay, then I can I can see where you're coming from, that uh, they tend to have fights that go to decision more often. Fans want to see knockouts and people getting hit upside their heads all over the place. So fine. That's why they like the heavyweights where it seems like it's just a damn coin flip most of the time. But if people get so excited about a 145 pound dude because of his personality, his charisma and his tendency to finish fights, then there's no reason they can't get excited about a 135 pound dude for the same reasons. Right now, really the only part that TJ Dillashaw is missing is the whole larger than life personality. I mean, he's an interesting guy and, uh, you know, he, he can give a pretty good interview. You might want him to crank up the volume on some of that stuff a little bit. If you're hoping to sell some pay-per-views, but you're right. Just as far as fighting skill, it's such a pleasure to watch him work. And, you know, we made all those comparisons to Dominic Cruz the first time he beat Henan Brow. You see him this time and you realize, you know, he's not lying when he says that the difference between him and Dominic Cruz, the big difference between them is power. TJ Dillashaw is using that style, that darting in and out style, and he's hitting people and hurting them uh, rather than hitting them, confusing them and, and taking them down. Yeah, at this point, it seems like if there is anything kind of holding TJ Dillashaw back from uh, from becoming that star that he could be, maybe it's a lack of competition at 135 because he gets this big win over Hannon Barrow the second time around. 
we got the sense that the reason that the UFC, at least one of the reasons that the UFC was so adamant about booking this rematch was that maybe there weren't a lot of immediate better options. So he goes out and gets this win against Henry Morrow, but now it's kind of still a mystery, like where his next fight is going to come from and, and who's going to provide uh, the challenge and be the foil to him being the champion. As you said, Dominic Cruz still injured. Rafael Asuncao, who would be the presumptive number one contender, also injured. Uh, the number four guy in the division is Uriah Faber, who is obviously TJ Dillashaw's teammate. They have, he, uh, Faber has said he would fight Dillashaw if Dillashaw asked him to, which is kind of a weird way to go about it. That's but, how I feel about you. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, Faber's also booked. Uh, opposite Conor McGregor in this new season, The Ultimate Fighter, even though they're not going to fight each other uh-huh. afterwards. So he's spoken for uh, for that. And then your number five guy is Michael McDonald, who we haven't seen in a long-ass time, and I believe is himself coming off a loss to Uriah Faber. So uh, not a lot of great in-the-division options for TJ Dillashaw, at least immediately. I think the Dominic Cruz fight is the one that everyone wants to see. But Ben, where do we go now with TJ Dillashaw? Yeah, last we heard from Dominic Cruz, wasn't he saying that he hoped to be back by the end of the year? Uh, which... Yeah, he had just torn his ACL and was expecting to be out for most of this year. Now, if you could 100% believe that, that Dominic Cruz would come back and be ready to fight by the end of the year without getting injured again between now and then, that does not seem to me like too long to wait for that fight at all. Because it does seem like, I mean, the only thing you could say there is that, again, it seems rough on Dominic Cruz to have to be out that long with injury and then jump right into the title fight against the absolute best dude in the division. Uh, the last time we saw him, they we put him in there where it had warm-up fight written all over it, and he treated it like he was fighting a warm-up opponent, and he was warmed the hell up already. And so maybe that makes you think that, hey, if he could do that, then maybe he could jump right back in there and compete with TJ Dillashaw. It's still a tall order, and I think the UFC would be a little hesitant to book it, at least without a good backup plan, like telling Rafael Sunsau, hey, get ready, uh, just in case. And wear your ankle braces. Yeah. So you don't re-injure yourself no no pickup basketball uh you you feel like you can't 100 percent believe that dominic cruz is even ever going to fight again right. just the way his career trajectory and gone. he's been it's, a- it's unfortunate yeah it, it's super unfortunate he's also been out you know kind of on and off so long that it seems like kind of like an unusual punishment or like a, a big a big test for him to try to get right back in in a fight against TJ Dillashaw. Uh, but again, then you run the risk of you give the guy a warm-up fight. Now you're saying, well, now Dominic Cruz needs to have two fights in a row without getting injured. But if that's the attitude, maybe you don't want him to be your champion anyway. Uh, I thought that it was kind of uh, weird on that immediately after the fight on social media, several UFC employees brought up Frankie Edgar. And uh, Habib Nurmagomedov actually tweeted at Dana White that he wanted to see Frankie Edgar against TJ Dillashaw, and Dana White replied with the smiley face, uh, which is always a loaded emoticon, I hmm. guess, from him. Hmm. Uh, it Things sa- that make you go, hmm. It sounded like a crazy idea when I first thought of it, but then, you know, the more I started to wrap my mind around it, the more it started to seem like maybe that would be the biggest fight you could make at bantamweight right now. Obviously, you would have to convince Frankie Edgar to hop out of line at featherweight where he seems dedicated and he would have to be able to make 135 pounds, but maybe you give him the opportunity to cut the line for an immediate title shot. Maybe that would be something that he would be interested in. I don't know. Really? Because I just pictured Frankie Edgar at home, probably like we've talked about before with his slippers and smoking jacket on reading the newspaper uh, with wearing his spectacles uh, and he's reaching over next to him for a bacon, lettuce, and tomato sandwich, and he's just about to take a bite. He's got the the mayonnaise on there just in the right proportions. He's just a t- about to take a bite, and he hears this stuff, this chatter start up, and he just sighs, puts it down, and the his inner Gilbert Ivel wonders, why I always getting fucked, man? Or maybe, though, maybe he's about to take a bite of that sandwich, and there's a knock at the back door. He gets up, puts his slippers on, finds his cane, makes it to the back door, opens it, and there's some kids out there, and they're like, gee, Mr. Edgar, will you come out in the backyard and fight T.J. Dillashaw right now? Maybe he says yes. You never know. Yeah, no, I don't think he'd have a problem fighting T.J. Dillashaw. I think that former lightweight champion Frankie Edgar 
would be annoyed to say the least after all the work he's put in at featherweight at being told, you know what, drop another weight class and then it's yours, buddy. The title shot is yours. Yes, there are aspects of it that make it seem a little bit far-fetched. Uh, but if it turned out and happened, I don't know that I would be that surprised. Ben, let's do Are You Fucking Kidding Me? And then we'll move on to round number two this week. Uh, this week we have kind of a joint. Are you fucking kidding me? Is that right? Is that thematically what we're doing here? linked? Thematically at least, linked. Yeah. My are you fucking kidding me? This week goes out to normally spectacular MMA referee Herb Dean. Uh, kind of an off night, I guess you would say, at the UFC on Fox this this past weekend. First, lets Joe Lauzon call the end of his own fight, which is always one of my favorite Dundasso moves. Works about fifty percent of the time, where you just walk away from your opponent, thereby forcing the referee to do something without having a, a tremendous amount of time to think about it. Uh, in this case, uh, Herb Dean took his sweet time. Seemed for a second there like he was going to let Takanori Gomi stand up off the mat and continue to fight. And then he decided to finally call it off. Not what you might describe as a picture perfect stoppage. Then later on in the main event. It seemed like for a minute there that he was going to let Henan Barrow get beat damn near to death in that uh, fourth round before he finally stepped in to call off the uh, TKO. It took so long, I even had the time to type any time now Herb into Twitter and post it. So <laughs> that tells you uh, about the slowness of that stoppage. So I guess even though I normally am a big fan this week, are you fucking kidding me, Herb Dean? Fucking kidding me? I think with the Henan Barrow one, he just wanted to see, is this guy's head actually going to pop off? And just go rolling out there into the crowd. And then after the stoppage, Renan Barrio even protested it, which I guess just tells you he's going to do that no matter what. Yeah. Somebody should tell him that he protested it (laughs) because he doesn't know. Well, sticking with the ref blunder theme, my are you fucking kidding me has to go out to referee Eve Levine, who late in the Misha Tate-Jessica I fight when Misha Tate had taken Jessica Eyes back and Jessica's response was just to clamp her hands down and stop Misha Tate from being able to do anything, basically stalling. And Eve Levine seemed to just get bored with it all and called for a stand-up, rewarding Jessica Eye, taking her out of one of the worst positions you can be in in a fight because she had the presence of mind to make sure that nothing happened. Now, that's just not a a philosophy we can afford to have in mixed martial arts where the fighter who is in the bad spot, as long as they can make sure that nothing happens, they, they get exactly where they want to be. They're rewarded with a position that is like 10 times better than the one they were just in all by doing nothing except for making sure that the other person can do nothing. Are you fucking kidding me? You don't stand people up out of back mount. You fucking kidding me? Well, that's going to do it for round number one. We'll be right back with round number two. Jed, I would like to begin round two by reading to you a quote. From UFC President Dana White, known for his ability to cut straight to the core of a matter. Man, where is Sir Nigel when we need him? And talk about exactly what the key issue is. In response to a question uh, from Karen Bryan, I believe, on the the post-fight show uh, after UFC on Fox 16, when asked uh, about the controversy that stemmed from the UFC firing Jacob Stitch Duran in light of his Reebok comments and whether there was any potential for him to come back. Dana White said no, he wouldn't be coming back. And then the crazy thing is, is first of all, we have 10 cutmen that work here at the UFC. We have 10 cutmen. Lorenzo and I decided that we would hire cutmen for the fighters early on. We started when we bought the UFC and Stitch Duran needs to learn what the meaning of the word friend is. Stitch Duran and I were never friends. We were work associates. We came up together in the boxing world. When we hired cutmen, he was one of the guys that we brought in here. Now I'd like to note first that the crazy thing is that they have 10 cutmen. I, from what how I read that quote, that's what he considers the crazy thing. Um, the the the, the cra- and from context, you can uh, infer that what he means is that anyone would latch on to one cut man, right? Yeah, cut men are a dime a dozen around here, yeah. sonny. 
it's the help. Why would anyone care that we lo- that we went down from ten to nine? It's it's absurd that he even has to answer this question. Uh, then the really sudden shift for hey, we have ten cut men. Lorenzo and I decided that we would hire cut men. Uh, and you know when we bought the UFC, comma and Stitch Duran needs to learn the meaning of the word friend is. There's where we go into a whole different territory. And yeah. the thing I have to wonder is. To what extent was it a conscious decision on Dana White's part where he was thinking, I know this is probably going to come up. What am I going to say about this? I know. I'll seize on this aspect, this tiny minor aspect of it about why didn't I personally call Duran to tell him he was fired. And I'll make that into the big deal. And I will make sure the headline on all the MMA sites is, I am not this dude's friend and I never was. Uh, and then it'll all kind of go away. That'll smooth this over. Yeah, well, I mean, uh, I think that that might be the most unknowable question about Dana White, right? (laughs) Is whether or not he's just a self-important blowhard who literally cannot help himself or whether or not he's crazy like a fox and he understands full well what this tirade about Stitch Duran is going to do. Uh, much the same way that I I wonder if he knew what the the tweet about USA Today was going to do because – You know, while that's a bizarre admission for the president of a sports company to make that his company would willingly pay for positive press, uh, an aspect of that tweet, by the way, which I feel like was kind of overlooked in its aftermath. Well, and also an an aspect of the tweet would be tells everybody else who the UFC might want to buy ads with in the future. Hold on. If you sell this man advertising space, he will then use it against you later on. So it seemed like a bizarre and crazy admission, but at the same time, it was effective as a swerve there for a little while in diverting everyone's attention. Or it was effective in keeping this a story. So then again, we refer to this idea. Is the man just a loose cannon or is there something a little bit more calculated about these media statements that you, that he makes? Uh, and I feel overall that like it's been a weird week plus for the UFC president. Like, cause yeah. he goes on that kind of overnight Twitter tirade. Uh, you go to bed. Chad. Right. Exactly. Uh, you goof. Get your profile pick is brutal. Uh, <laughs> And clearly, like, that's not new territory for him. But it is, it seems a little bit more, like, it seems slightly more unhinged yeah, than the, that's the, the thing. Like, what he's used to. It doesn't seem like new territory, but at the same time, it feels like the universe has shifted around him or something. Like, he's still doing the same stuff that he's always been doing, but now there's this aspect of it where it seems to be less effective or like we're buying it less that we're all kind of our reaction to it is, is man, it's 2015 and we're still doing this really. Yeah. And so that makes me wonder, like, is he kind of running out of bullets in a way? Like, is he running out of political capital? Is he, is he suffering from like a respect vacuum? And the weird thing about it is if you're the UFC and you consciously make the decision over the last decade, to basically link your brand with Dana White's brash, off-the-cuff style of of being, essentially, like, that kind of makes your whole company feel like it's losing the handle, right? Yeah. And that is a weird place to be if you are trying to be the world's largest fight promoter and convince us all that that nothing is wrong. Yeah, you're right about that. And I do think, you know, we saw, especially in light of the lawsuit which made use of Dana, some of Dana White's past statements to try to use them against the UFC uh, and use them to prove that the UFC was exactly doing exactly the kind of things that it, the lawsuit alleged. And it seemed like he took a big step back. We just didn't see him as much at press conferences. We didn't hear that much from him in these one-on-one interviews. And it used to be that when you'd go to a UFC press conference, it, the Dana scrum after the press conference was always one of the most interesting parts because then the, and people kind of got used to like, okay, these are the questions I will ask for the press conference and these were the ones that would be best to save for the Dana scrum afterwards. And you'd always get some interesting, you know, newsworthy or sometimes just weird stuff out of that. And those have just completely disappeared really like, and now it's okay. He'll stand there and he'll talk to Fox sports uh, or something for the UFC fight pass online. And that's kind of it. And, and even then, you know, you get stuff like this, a third hypothesis, instead of looking at it as, does he, 
is this a calculated effort or is he just saying stuff? A third one is that it's a calculated effort, but he it, he is miscalculating how it's going to go over very, very drastically. Because yeah, and I that's do, not something that we can discount, frankly. I do think like the thing or Danny Downs and I discussed this uh, this week in our column, but the thing you can say about that whole Stitch Duran controversy, and we talked about in the Breakfast of Champions that it does seem weird that this, of all the stuff the UFC has done, all the aggressive uh, stuff to to silence critics and to to punish people uh, for speaking out, that this, the firing of a cut man, would prompt such widespread reaction. Like it does seem like maybe that it's just built up to a point where people are responding to the whole like aggregate instead of just that one event. But by continuing to talk about it this way and by doing that in the first place, it's like you had a, a UFC title fight on Fox last week and that was not the big story on MMA websites for most of the week. The firing of Stitch Duran was the big story, right? So you don't really get as much attention as you would like to on your UFC title fight on network TV. Now you've got the cash machine, Ronda Rousey, uh, plugged into the wall to go down there in Brazil and uh, probably do something terrible to Betch Cohea on pay-per-view. And it's still a story because of his reaction to the reaction to it. I mean, that... That is not good for you, if you the UFC. I don't see how you can make the statement that that you have you have done a good job at handling that controversy. Well, I feel like we have unwittingly stumbled into an awesome nickname for Ronda Rousey. <laughs> but more to the point, the other thing that that a lot of this stuff makes me wonder. We talked last week about rumors whether or not the UFC is for sale. When I see Dana White acting like this, like something way in the back of my mind is like, does he think he's not around for that much longer? Like, is he suffering short time from, in it? Yeah, is he suffering from senioritis? Does he have <laughs> one foot out the door here because he knows that you know the hedge fund is going to swoop in and that his time here will be done anyway? But at the same time, like you just said, going out there and acting like a loose cannon uh, is one of those things where if you if the potential buyer was circling around the UFC, would would a would a, a potential buyer see those uh, forest fires that Dana White runs around and starts? And would he think, you know what, we're going to pass here? Or would he just think like, you know, the asking price just went down uh, because you've just created new controversies. We're already worried about this Reebok stuff and the, the drug testing program and the lawsuit. And now you you just went and made a bunch of your fans mad at you. And then when they got on Twitter to tell you that they were mad at you, you told them to fuck off and stop being your fans. Uh, if I am thinking about making the UFC an offer, and who knows, Chad, maybe I am. You don't know. Uh, that just made me think like, you know, you, wait a minute. You have an ownership stake in this thing, right? You're going to get a piece of the big payout. Why are you trying to lower the price? Now, as noted on Twitter this week, my favorite Dana White Twitter burn of the past week was you go to bed. What what was yours? Did you have one? Was one one that stuck out to you? Because I can tell you my second favorite. Was it you, when he replied to the fourteen year old kid who burned him back pretty well? No, but that is an awesome story. I was glad to see that reported. My second favorite is when he tells people to mind their own business. Yes, no, and that's a that's one that he's done in the past too. Right, a dude who is operating a Twitter account with over a million followers who makes sure to insult people about his business in public then tells everyone else to mind the business when someone else is like, hey, man, why are you doing this? Yeah. Well, Worry about what you're doing. <laughs> well, the thing to me is like all of those reactions, they, the kind of unstated part of them is how dare any of these people try to voice an opinion to him about the product that they have financially supported uh, in many cases, for years and years. Like when Dana White is importing snow into his driveway and driving around in a Ferrari, that's their money he's doing that with. And from his uh, way of thinking of it, they don't, that doesn't even buy them the right to say something on Twitter that they, about the direction things are going without him making fun of them or, you know, insisting that they don't even get an opinion. Weird times afoot. Yes. With the UFC. That's going to do it for round number two. We'll be right back with round number three.
right, Ben. Well, I'm going to start round three by reading a quote to you from the cash machine, Ronda Rousey. Oh, man. Here we go. Uh, I believe this was when she was at the UFC Reebok uniform unveiling. She's talking about Betch Cohea, obviously. She says, it's definitely become personal personal for me at this point, and when I finish fights quickly, that's when I'm being nice. I'm not going to be nice to this chick, and she is going to have a very long, painful lesson that night. I've never looked forward to beating up someone more in my entire life. Now, my question to you is, dear God, what does an extra special Ronda Rousey beating look like? Yeah, you know, and the thing is, on one hand, that's the kind of promise I think it would take to make this what seems otherwise like kind of an obvious squash match. Squash match. Or squash match. Uh, or squash Who knows? Match. Sasquatch could show up in the middle of it. Yeah. Well, none of that would be worth buying. But if you're trying to sell this to people on pay-per-view and saying, hey, no, don't just wait for the GIF to hit the internet tomorrow. Pay $60 uh, and sit through like 14 damn fights or however many are on this card uh, just to get to Ronda Rousey finishing off Betch Cohea in 30 seconds. The The best sales pitch is Ronda Rousey is going to make this last and is going to make it terrible and it's going to be a lesson in violent comeuppance. Yeah, I mean, so it's actually kind of a smart sales pitch. Yeah, It's like the only sales pitch you could do at this point with a fight against Betch Cohea, who's going off as something akin to a 10-to-1 underdog as of this writing. Uh, and no one expects her to win, not only because Ronda Rousey has been a generation ahead of all of her peers for the entire time she's been in the UFC, but it also seems like Cohea's skill set naturally makes this an impossible fight for her yeah. because she is primarily a striker, but at the same time she lacks or has lacked up to this point, uh one punch knockout power that when she wins fights, it's kind of a war of attrition. So she's got to stand there and hit you a bunch of times at the same time. She doesn't seem to have the mobility or the athleticism or the strength to like keep Ronda Rousey away from her or to fight her off. If Ronda Rousey gets her hands on her, uh, and we've seen Kohei on the ground a couple of times, uh, particularly in the first round of her fight against Shayna Baszler, when Shayna Baszler uh, threatened her with an armbar triangle combo, and then right near the end of the round had her in a choke, where I don't know if it was tight, tight enough or not, but uh, you know the round expired with Kohei in that position. So we've seen Kohei on the ground have like a decent ground game, but certainly not remarkable. It just kind of seems like I don't see a way for her to win this. Yeah. Or it seems like the only way for her to win it is for Ronda Rousey to go all uh, Prince Oberon versus the, the mountain kind of way and get so caught up in punishing her and making it last and making a point that she screws up somewhere in there. So that's the why the question is, do we believe Ronda Rousey? Is she really going to go out there and take what amounts to an additional risk to put... Uh, some discipline, as she called it at one point on Betch Cohea, or is this totally a sales pitch? Is she going to go out there, throw in her head and armbar her in 15 seconds, and then at the post-fight press conference be like, you know, I wanted it to take a long time, but then when I got in there, I just got so excited, and I, you know... It was so easy right. that I was on autopilot. My judo just took over, as it so often does, and I and I tapped her out super fast. Do we buy what Ronda Rousey is selling here? You know, I really don't know. I, well, I don't either, and I guess the follow-up question to that is, if Ronda Rousey wants to go out there and put a devastating and embarrassing, also words that she has used, beat down on Betch Cohea, where her face looks different afterwards, uh, she seems fully capable of doing that, yeah. right? Like, Cohea won't be able to stop her. Like Only the referee will be able to stop her. Throw her down on her head get in mount, start throwing down some elbows, pause every once in a while just so uh, the referee doesn't stop it from uh, accumulation. Um, I don't know, maybe ask her what your name is, uh, do one of those kind of things, or you know, ask her to, to admit the ways that she has wronged you and then elbow her in the face again before she can say anything. I don't know. I mean, it's one of those things where a part of me is like, Come on, it'd be kind of awesome to have to see Ronda Rousey make a point. Like, just go out there and make a beating last. 
And then on the other hand, though, wouldn't it just prove what a ridiculous fight it was that she can just do absolutely anything she wants? Wouldn't we maybe feel a little bit sick after watching that? Like it was just not not sporting to begin with. Yeah. And I mean, I've in the past, I've been complimentary of Betch Cohea on this show just because I like what she's done up like, to this you point. You like to dance. Hypocritically, you were into her dance and not Hannah Burroughs. I don't recall that as being a thing. I think you probably just made that up. But uh, as I said before, one of the problems with the women's bantamweight division up to this point, besides shallowness, is that everybody's just too motherfucking friendly. And Betch Cohea came out which what, with what I think was a like kind of a genius marketing strategy for herself. Beat Jessamine Duke. Did the, I'm going to fold down my finger and having beat one of the four horse persons. And then I'm going to fight Shayna Baszler and I'm going to beat her. I'm going to do the same thing. And I'm going to be one of the people in this division. One of the few people in this division that not only doesn't shy away from Ronda Rousey, but gets in her face and provokes her. And so in a matter of three fights over opponents who have a combined UFC record of something like one in seven, uh, Betch Cohea has managed to establish herself as the number one contender from being a complete unknown like a year ago. So I think you kind of got to give it up to her and say, nice job, frankly, of getting yourself into this pay-per-view main event against the most dominant champion in the UFC. And I would even go as far to say that she had already won, had it, were it not for the fact that it seems like she has called down the thunder from a person who usually doesn't need an excuse to cripple you in some way. Yeah, that is the thing is when you ask yourself, what has she earned for all that? Uh, She's earned the title fight, the chance to fight in the main event uh, at home in Brazil. Uh, I mean, I guess she gets the the Reebok title fight money, right? Even though she's not the champion, if if you're fighting in a title fight, then you get the bump in pay regardless of what your experience level was. So there's that. There's a little extra money that comes with it. Uh, But... I don't know, man. If you were midway through round two getting your, your face elbowed open, I'm not sure you would necessarily feel like, well, at least I got that extra 10 or 20 grand from Reebok. Uh, seven fights, Ben, on the main card of UFC 190. Two of those fights, a lightweight fight featuring Glacio Franca against Fernando Bruno and a bantamweight, bantamweight fight featuring... Delano Lopez versus Reginaldo Vieira. Nailed it. Main card fights for <laughs> UFC 190. What are you saying? Uh, I'm saying I've never, I don't know that I've ever seen a, a UFC pay per view with seven fights on the main card before. Two nogs. Well, yeah, well, you got to go double wide when you got two nogs. <laughs> uh, but we're going to be here all damn night for this thing, right? I mean, Unless Ronda Rousey ends things in, in 12 seconds. Well, you got two heavyweight fights on the main card, so maybe those will be, you know, your your 20-second heavyweight uh, variety fights rather than your, you know, 15-minute heavyweight uh, fights. Let's hope. Uh, yeah, man, I don't know. It could be a long night. I'm not going to lie to you. Uh, is this the, the, have we already determined Ronda Rousey's drawing power or like, is this the fight where we find the Ronda Rousey baseline for how many pay-per-view buys she's going to bring in? What Ronda Rousey draws if she's, how much money the cash machine is going to spit out. Yeah. Ronda Rousey versus a golden retriever draws X buys. I don't know. I mean, I think that there is some like rivalry element to this that, uh, can give it a little bit extra of a boost. But like we said, when talking about the potential Ronda Rousey, Misha Tate three, we're kind of getting to the point where you don't have a whole lot of ways left to sell these fights because she seems so dominant. And so uh, she's just easily winning them all. So you can't really go with the Ronda Rousey faces her greatest test ever. Every single time you just can't do that. Yeah. And if we're, if we're already doing Misha Tate three after that, this that gets us into 2016 at which point maybe holly holm would be ready and then if you're not going to get a chris cyborg fight done by the end of next year i would assume you are not going to get it done uh kind of to me raises the question of how long ronda's going to stick around and keep doing this although as noted last time if she's just going to keep beating people in 15 seconds Hell, man, just do it till you're 50. Yeah, make some movies, swing by, armbar someone, then jet out again. Why not? It seems like good money if you can get it. Uh, Ben, let's do Just Saying Stuff, and then we will get out of here for this week. Ben, I don't know if you saw 
uh, Ariel Helwani's annual sit down with CM Punk over in Chicago this past week. Uh, part of the video was CM Punk detailing the story of how the UFC basically recruited him to come in and be a fighter. He said he was hanging out in Louisville with one of his professional wrestler buddies when Dana White just called him out of the blue. Uh, and CM Punk, by the way, does a good Dana White impression, furthering my theory that every professional wrestler can do a spot-on impression of everyone they know. And it's not just limited to other professional wrestlers. Uh, Dana White calls him out of breath. He's leaving one of his kids' football games, which he describes as, describes as a crazy overtime win. Uh, and he basically says to CM Punk, have you ever thought of fighting? And CM Punk says, yeah, all the time, but like not seriously. Dana White and Lorenzo fly up there. They have dinner with him. They say, basically, start training however long it takes. We'll book you a fight. We'll sign you to a contract if that's what you want to do. Uh, CM Punk says he has to talk it over with his wife, but we all know the end of the story. He does eventually sign with the UFC. Now, this puts a different spin on it, man, than yes, it I does. than yes, I had ever, ever thought before. Uh, I had assumed that CM Punk had gone to the UFC and said, hey, I'm thinking about fighting. I want to have a fight. A man possessed. Just an ungovernable passion to right. compete in mixed martial For arts. For the UFC to go to him and basically recruit him off the street, I don't know, man. I'm just saying weird? Pretty weird. A little bit weird. Very weird. Just saying. Just saying. Well, Chad, I'm just saying, you remember at the Reebok launch when uh, we had Ronda Rousey up there with the, the, the woman from Reebok? Yeah. Uh, with the the, the pleasing cyborg, the, the Terminator, the she pleasing like the Terminator. James Bond villain accent, and they the topic of conversation turned to fight bras. Indeed, it did. And this Reebok executive was saying how you know she found it crazy when she heard that because there weren't any good sports bras for women to use uh, in fights, Ronda Rousey was just going out there wearing two sports bras to get her needs met uh, as far as athletic wear went and how that was crazy, it's Chad. It's crazy. One of the things Reebok was going to do, Ben, they were going to come in and clean that up. Am I right? That's right. Elevate the sport. Well, fast forward to UFC on Fox 16 where we see the fight between Elizabeth Phillips and Jessamine Duke. And there, especially at the end of the fight where Elizabeth Phillips pretty exhausted, but up two rounds to none against Jessamine Duke, trying to fight off an arm bar. And as I'm sure you've seen from the screen grabs all over the place, a little bit of a wardrobe malfunction uh, for Elizabeth Phillips. And I'm just saying maybe the two sports bras thing wasn't such a bad idea. Maybe the fighters actually knew a little something that Reebok didn't. I'm just saying. Just saying. Wow. You know, we had said previously I didn't know how it could get any worse for Reebok, uh, but I feel like it just did. Exposing a professional athlete's nipple. Yes. Yeah. Just got worse. Well, that's going to do it for this week's co-main event podcast. We'll be back next week to tell you all the stuff that happens at UFC 190. Maybe we'll even have the official time of victory for Ronda Rousey or Betch Cohea, asterisk. Come on, man. As for right now, though, we're done. We're through. We are out. You know, as weird as it sounds, I feel like learning that you are not friends, but rather work associates with Dana White is something that a lot of people in this industry could benefit from. You know, uh, I agree with you there. I was also thinking when he said that, um, that you know, is Anthony Kiedis sitting at home watching that going, wait a minute, but we're, but we're really friends, right?